what should Missouri be doing? Director of Government Accountability at the Show Me Institute, Patrick Ishmael, is going to join us now on the live line to talk about some policy recommendations for our fearless leaders. Hi, Patrick. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for being here. We we like to have you on at least, you know, once a year, sometimes three, four times a year, just to talk policy and what you think is going on. But before we get rolling, tell everyone listening what the Show Me Institute actually is. So the Show Me Institute is a free market think tank. Uh, it's the only one of its kind here in the state. And what we do uh, is we focus on state policy, state and local, but uh, we cover anything and pretty much everything here in the state that has to do with economics and has to do with markets. And so that could include tax policy, that could include education policy, could include a lot of different areas. Uh, but we serve as a resource uh, to anybody that will have us, uh, but mainly we, we try to educate the public about important matters that uh, the state are, is facing. All right. So I want to get in as much as we can in the next, you know, 13, 14 minutes or so. But what is your top priority? I mean, now that we've got legal medical marijuana coming to the state, I'm sure that comes into play somewhere. Well, I think it's a really interesting issue. Uh, You know, certainly there's going to be a lot of discussion of, you know, what are the next steps? And the fact that Missouri is taking, you know, steps down that road toward probably full legalization, I think that that is something that's going to have to be engaged. You know, what what kind of uh, regulations are you going to have in place? Uh, you know, it to, you know to what extent is it is it appropriate for the state to kind of intervene in that way? Are you going to tax it? Um, I, you know, I think that's an, an emerging issue. We haven't done a whole lot of work in that area, but I think it's pretty clear that Missouri is is very much part of the trend that you're seeing nationwide. Where whether you're talking about CBD or whether you're talking about hemp or whether you're talking about um, marijuana for recreational purposes or medicinal purposes, uh, Missouri is very much engaged in that conversation, and it'll be really interesting to see over the course of the next years where the state stands. Um, it'll probably move more and more toward liberalization of uh, you know marijuana and, and that kind of thing. And the question, it, the interesting question, of course, is what kind of effect will that have in other areas? We you know. Uh, certainly, alcohol has been legal for a lot of years, uh, uh, and uh, certainly there are positive aspects and negative aspects. The question is, how do those things get weighted by the public? And and if it does become fully legalized, what will the impact be? I'm sure there's a lot of opportunity for research uh, on those particular issues going forward. So, you know, it's, medical marijuana is, is funny. You know, the California uh, pot taxes are lagging because there's an illegal market popping up, and you know that's always going to happen when you legalize something. There's just going to be a black market anyway, so we need to we need to be thinking about that too. Um, well, I think and I, well, I think it's so interesting because it's not just necessarily with pot. It's anything that you have government that in government where you have high taxes or high regulation, a black market tends to develop as a result of it. And that's one thing. You know, if, if the argument in favor of marijuana legalization is that well, it's coming, you know, to you know people are using it anyway. Uh, you know, we ought to, you know, get some tax revenue or something off, off of it. You, you have to be very mindful about government's role in actually still creating a block mar- black market where not only are you not going to get tax revenue, but you'll actually not really see, have the kind of oversight that you think you'll see by legalizing it. Uh, you know, there are lots of unintended consequences of government regulation. Black markets oftentimes can be one of those. Mm-hmm. It's a true story. All right. So, you know, we talk about charter schools all the time. And do you think that that's a good or bad idea as we move forward in 2019? 
Well, I think I think school choice is is a good idea, and whether you're talking about charter schools or whether you're talking more broadly about education savings accounts, uh, it, it's very important. I think that we're not creating kind of you know geographically restricted opportunities for our children, uh, and if there are certain kinds of schools that you know you think will better serve your child, I think you should have an opportunity to be able to enroll your your child there. Um, and, and I think that's the name of the game when you're talking about education, is that flexibility, making sure that you can have an educational uh, system, an educational program for your kid uh, that actually meets their needs. And, and part of the blueprint itself, it, it actually, one, one of the really important aspects is having great teachers in the classroom. And what you find in a lot of school districts is that the way that uh, teachers are compensated, it's a, a pretty set pay scale. And mm-hmm. so... And a lot of times it's negotiated between uh, the teachers' union and the district. But the, the effect is it's kind of a one-size-fits-all pay system that doesn't necessarily integrate the opportunities of bringing in, uh, you know, a, a really excellent teacher uh, or, or someone who may be a great scientist, may be a great science teacher, but they are uh, so qualified for that job that they may expect to be able to be paid more. Or you have a great teacher who just is, is uh, you know, well beyond their years and their expertise, and yet they're kind of stuck in this pay schedule that doesn't necessarily reward uh, their their achievement or their merit. I think that's one item that, that we talk about in the blueprint that I think is really highly important, uh, making sure that uh, great teachers, uh, you know, can come into the profession and stay in the profession uh, and that our, our kids can learn from them. Uh, and, and I think... Taking that, making sure the teachers are well compensated, and making sure the best of the best are are very well compensated, uh, and, and making sure that um, students can move around and find those teachers and find those programs that are doing really good work and really taking care of their students. Um, I think that's that is a really important aspect of you know future education. The other part too, um, which is also a really high priority for us, is the question of workforce development. And you know, workforce development can mean a lot of different things, but I think for Missouri, what it means is kind of a reassessment of the way that we prioritize education, uh, particularly when you're talking about post-high school education, because I think a lot of times, unfortunately, we emphasize very heavily the importance of a college degree, and, and in some cases, you know, that's appropriate. You know, some folks, I think, are predisposed to, to, to go into those sorts of fields, but the problem is that if you're explicitly or, imp- or implicitly downplaying the opportunities in Blue, uh, blue collar professions, um, uh, construction, for instance. There are so many great jobs in construction right now uh, that are unfilled because uh, I think a lot of folks who would otherwise go into those those professions are kind of being, you know, moved into uh, you know college careers uh, and, and white collar careers that may not be nearly as lucrative as uh, as a blue collar career might actually be. So it, it's an assessment by the state of whether or not we are applying our resources well enough uh, to meet the 21st century workforce needs that we have. And I think that's going to be a big conversation in Jefferson City this year. I just think construction would be more interesting, too. But anyway, um, the, the the problem we fall in with teacher salaries and charter schools and all that sort of thing, and I've, I got a couple of messages from listeners while we were chatting there, Patrick, is they pay taxes in a certain district and then they go somewhere else where their taxes aren't paying for their education and therefore it's an unfair burden on the taxpayers of that particular area. How do you how do you factor that in? 
Well, you know, I, th- I think it's a complicated issue for sure. Um, and I think, you know, different parts of the states are going to have different needs and, and have different views on this. But I think, you know, I, to the extent that we are kind of forcing kids into schools that are terrible, um, I, I think that that has long-term consequences as well. And, you know, I think the near-term concern about, you know, where my property tax is going, I want them to go to my district, and I, I don't want other folks to be able to use those resources. I, you know, I, I understand that. I get that. But what I would say, too, though, is that let's say that there's a school district, you know, nearby where some of the kids could get a better education in, in a school district that you do, a, you know, a great job with. Um, but those kids are kind of stuck there. They don't get good education, and they end up, you know, kind of going down a bad path. There are other costs associated to bad education other than just, uh, you know, the cost of the education itself. I mean, these, if you if you end up on a government program later in life because you, you weren't able to get instruction that allows you to, you know, read sufficiently, um, it, it's either you, you pay, pay for it, you know, today or you pay for it later. And, you know, I, I, that's, that's broad. You know, different folks are in different situations. But I think that you, we have to be very clear that, you know, if we are going to talk about a public education, that we are talking about actually making sure that the public in, across the state is actually able to receive it. And, and in those places where kids are not able to get a, an education that actually comports with their needs, um, it's not a question of uh, if people in other districts are going to end up having to pay the price for that. The question is when. And the answer to that when is uh, maybe not you know today, maybe not tomorrow, uh, but uh, it will probably be sometime soon, and it'll be a long-term kind of, of cost that if, you know, you're able to get get a kid a, a good education and a good job, uh, you would have been able to avoid that cost uh, pretty, pretty, you know, decidedly early on in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are so many different ways to, to look at this. It's, it's not even funny. But um, moving on to the next topic, because I only have four minutes left, because time really flies when I talk to Patrick. We have so much <laughs> to talk about, but... Um, I want to talk about um, corrections reform, if you will, um, just uh, criminal justice reform and the minimum wage being forced to go up. It's, this is something I disagree with, even though I've worked for minimum wage many times in my life and it's not fun, but it wasn't meant for me to support an entire family on minimum wage. There are other options out there, including what you were talking about with technical training, but the prevailing wage, the minimum wage going up, and then criminal justice reform are the two things I really want to hear from you about. Well, I think you know, criminal justice reform is, is another one of those areas that, you know, one policy area can bleed into another policy area. Right. And so, you know, bad uh, criminal justice policy can drive up the cost for uh, uh, taxpayers, uh, and it can it may not actually, you know, be correctional in the sense that folks are able to actually get their lives on track and they're able to get out of the system and, and, and go into gainful employment and, and be able to contribute to society. I think that's a huge, huge issue. My colleague Patrick Tuey is, starting to work on that, as well as uh, Emily Staley, both in the Kansas City office. Uh, that's going to be a big deal, not only for the individuals who are impacted by it, but also for the state itself that has to ultimately pay for it. And, and when you start moving into the minimum wage question and the prevailing wage question, uh, prevailing wage is not like a union versus non-union issue. Prevailing wage it, it deals with state projects and payment for you know construction uh, or some renovations in, in the rate that has to be paid. And, and unfortunately, 
in the case of prevailing wage, which is similar to minimum wage, the state mandates a certain wage for a certain kind of work, uh, and, and generally speaking, that wage is above what the market would otherwise bear. In the, in the context of prevailing wage, what that means is that the state is overpaying for uh, a lot of the things that it's buying, which means that you can't spend more money on, say, education or other infrastructure projects like roads. Uh, and the same is true of when you're talking about the minimum wage in the private sector, uh, when you are uh, kind of taking out the bottom rungs of the ladder by saying, you know what, uh, you, you could work for $8 an hour, but we're going to force employers to pay $12 an hour, um, employers aren't just going to, you know, sit there and, and take it. They're going to, you know, move toward automation. They're going to start hiring workers who are uh, more highly qualified than uh, an entry-level worker who would pay, be paid that lower wage. Uh, there are consequences to bad policy, and, and you know, Folks like to talk about, or, you know, supporters of the policies like to talk about, hey, you know, look how much money we're giving these people. But you're, what you're really doing is you're creating other costs and imposing those sometimes on the very people you're trying to help. I think that's true in the minimum wage context. I think that's true in the prevailing wage context. In, in, in the prevailing wage context, there are cities that aren't <laughs> undertaking projects because they're too expensive. Um, and so... You know, with, with any government policy, you have to look at the seen and the unseen. Uh, and when you're talking about unseen costs, those are things that we need to take very seriously, just like we see the, the, the seen things that get built or, or you know, are, are delayed in getting built. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, though, a lot of small business owners are really struggling with this forced increase in minimum wage. And it's jobs are going to be lost. It's that simple because, you know, that jobs are going to be lost. Yeah, and I, I think that that's it, it. It makes it tougher for small business and businesses in particular because bigger businesses like Walmart can handle increases like that a lot more easily. Uh, and not only is it an impact on small businesses, which may be you know their margins will be decreased, it's going to have an impact on those employees too because if you know suddenly you you can only keep nine people on when before you could keep ten people on. Uh, the business is going to suffer, but the individuals themselves are either going to lose hours or lose a job. And, you know, that's that's not a pro-worker solution. That's not a pro-worker policy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it hurts my feelings that people don't understand that. I'm kidding. Nothing hurts my feelings anymore. Patrick Ishmael is Director of Government Accountability at the Show Me Institute. How do they learn more about what y'all are working on and recommending for Missouri for policy? You can go to our website, showmeinstitute.org, and we're on Facebook and Twitter. All right, Patrick Ishmael. Thank you, sir. Happy 2019, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. Bye-bye now.